All right, everybody, why don't you grab a seat? It's great to see you. So glad you're here today. Special welcome to everyone joining us online and everyone in the balcony. Hey, balcony crew, what's going on? So glad you're hanging out up there. Hi, River, I love you. You got some treats? Nice. Hey, good morning, everyone. How are you feeling? Everyone good? That was not convincing at all. I feel like, Ted, you're the only one that's doing all right in the house of the Lord today. How's everybody feeling? You good? Yeah. All right. Hey, I'd like to open today with a scripture, actually two scriptures, and, um, and you know, there's a lot of things that we could do better here as a church, but I tell you what, we read a lot of Bible, okay? And so um, we just want to put God's word in front of you. We are hit day after day after day after day with outside sources filling our brains. And so we want to make sure that we give you a fair dose of uh, a buffet, a spiritual buffet every Sunday here. And so uh, make sure you listen up. This is from Hebrews 11, and we're going to be reading from Philippians chapter 2 to open up our service. It says this, Long ago God spoke many times and in many ways to our ancestors through the prophets. And now, in these final days, he has spoken to us through his Son. God promised everything to the Son as an inheritance, and through the Son, he created the universe. The Son, Jesus, radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of God. And he sustains everything by the mighty power of his command. When he had cleansed us from our sins, he sat down in the place of honor at the right hand of the majestic God in heaven. This shows that the Son is far greater than the angels, just as the name God gave him is greater than their names. But, Philippians 2, though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges, and he took up the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. This is Jesus. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the highest place of honor and gave him the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. Good morning again. Welcome home. So glad you're here. If you don't know me, my name is David. I'm the drummer today, and it was really fun with these kids. How cool is it to see the kids worship today? Oh, man. You know, there's something special about, Pastor Jeff said this a lot, that, there, that you can tell the health of a church by the kids. And you see these kids up there, and they're singing, and Jesus loves me. Oh, Lord, didn't that break your heart just a little bit? So beautiful. And so thank you, Pastor Karen, for leading the kids so well. Um, if you don't know me again, my name is David, lead pastor here at Highlands. So happy to be speaking today from the scriptures. Again, welcome to those joining us online. Um, we are on week two of our fall series, going through the entire book of Colossians, my favorite letter in the New Testament. Um, and last week we started with chapter one, and we hit verses one through 14. This was Pastor Jeff last week. And so if you have your Bibles today, you can open up. We're going to be looking at verses 15 through 23. 
And just a heads up to everyone in the house, this past week was pretty wild for Rebecca and I. Um, last Sunday night, we had our worship night here, and some of you heard, but like Monday morning, we got on a plane and we headed to Texas, the great nation of Texas, I was told. It's not a state. They are, they are proud of being, okay, anyway. And, um, and we headed down there to partner with our family of churches, which is called Converge, came out of the Swedish Baptist Church, and um, to help assess future church planters. And there were 15 couples that came in to Dallas this past week with hopes and dreams to go and one day plant a church somewhere in our region, which is Southern California, into uh, Arizona and into Texas. And so it's a big region, but 15 couples, and it was an unbelievable experience to witness these people with such a zeal for the Lord. And after the week, we, we ended up uh, passing 12 of 15 to go and plant churches in our region. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? Now, you might be thinking, what's 12? Well, it's 12 more than what was, okay? And, uh, and so, God, we just believe that the best is yet to come for our family of churches, Converge, and, um, and one of those families is actually going to be planting in San Diego. And so we're really excited um, for, uh, for them and, um, and the work that they'll be doing. We hope to partner with them more in the future. Isn't that exciting? Cool. Well, I say that, give you an update on this, because... All that said, from Tuesday, 8 a.m. to 8.30 p.m., Wednesday, 8 a.m. to 8.30 p.m., Thursday, you get the, the drift. I, I didn't get a ton of time that I normally would have to write a message, and so um, Friday, I get to the airport, finally get started on this, on this message, and we leave Dallas 90 minutes late, um, and I'm sitting on the plane as we're about to take off, and I'm just praying. I say, God, I'm trying to bargain with God a little bit. I don't know if you've ever bargained with God, but I said, God, I've been serving you all week. I've been doing everything I can to help push your kingdom forward. If you could just help me out with a, with a sermon, that would be really helpful. And I'm sitting there, and I was so dumb, right? Because God doesn't need me to bargain. Um, but anyway, I'm sitting there on the plane, and I'm trying to convince God to help me. Um, when, I just, when I heard this kind of still, soft voice, and I hold this very loosely, because I don't assume that God speaks verbally to me often, but I, I was sitting there, and I was praying, and I just felt God saying to me, just tell them what you know. That's enough. Because I was stressed, y'all. All week I was stressed thinking about you because I love you and I want to make sure that I represent the text well. But I'm sitting there and God, I just felt God speaking to me. Just tell them what you know. And so here I am and I'm going to do just that. And so if you're taking notes, the unofficial title for today's message is, This is What I Know. <laughs> Always be ready to share, right, Norm? This is what I know, Colossians 1, 15 through 23. And y'all, I tell you what, what I know is some seriously good news for you. This is the good news of Jesus. So, all right, as we pick up on this passage today, um, if you're kind of new to the church or to the Bible, we're reading out of this book called Colossians, and, and it's found in the New Testament, which is the second half of your Bible's post-story of Jesus. And it, was the, um, and it was first written as a letter from a guy called Paul. Paul, earlier in the story of the church, was once a villain of the church before God rescued him and, and welcomed him into his marvelous light. And, um, and so Paul, uh, Paul was out, and God saved him, and from that moment on, Paul went on mission to share the good news of Jesus wherever he went. And one of these missions that Paul was on landed him in jail. Fun times. And it was from this place, from jail, from house arrest, that he wrote the letter to the Colossian church. It was a church 
that had been planted, think about church planting, right, by a couple regular guys, just a couple regular guys that Paul mentored when he was in Ephesus, two guys named Epaphras and Philemon. And this happened somewhere around 62 AD. So Jesus dies around 33, right? 33, this happened 62, so it's about 30-ish years into the era of the church. So, back to Paul. He was writing to the Colossian church to help these young pastors who had no Bible, think about this, no Bible, no church history, no focused statement of faith or robust doctrine. He wrote them to help address a number of pretty specific challenges they were facing that crept into their local church community. Challenges that aren't all that uncommon to what we face today, as we learned about these last week from Pastor Jeff's message. Brilliant, Pastor Jeff, brilliant. And the three primary challenges that they were facing were mysticism, you can see this on the screen, mysticism, syncretism, and legalism. Mysticism, syncretism, and legalism. Now, what does this mean? Well, this is what I know. Starting with legalism, the church in Colossae was dealing with legalism from within the Jewish members of their church. It was, a, it was folks that, that said that the gospel was true, that Jesus was real, and all this stuff was good, but then they added more and more layers of behavior and practice that, that they believed was necessary for their salvation or to guarantee their salvation. So they were essentially saying that salvation equals Jesus plus good works. Jesus plus good works equals salvation. It might sound familiar for some of you that grew up in a more, um, I don't know, strict church community, if you did. For you, maybe it was Jesus plus church attendance, or Jesus plus Bible memorization, or giving, or Bible, uh, Jesus plus not cussing very much, or Jesus plus dressing the right way, or acting holier than thou. Has anyone ever existed around uh, real legalistic Christians? We all have, you know it. Has anyone here been a legalistic Christian? Every hand in the room pops up. I think there was this phrase growing up, and I grew up in a not, not a very legalistic church, but um, I, there was a, phase, a phrase I heard growing up that said, don't smoke, dance, drink or chew, or run who folks that do. You know, anyone hear this? This is legalism. It's folks adding extra conditions personal works or prohibitions to what God already did to earn salvation. And this is a problem they faced in the church. The next thing we see is called syncretism, and this is basically the practice of mixing, mixing worship, worshiping Jesus to worshiping other gods along with Jesus. Now, at the time that Paul was writing this in the first century in Colossae, there were all sorts of religions floating around the Roman Empire and the first century Middle East. There were Roman gods and Greek gods and Eastern gods and temples to all sorts of gods and goddesses. And so in the church, this, this former life kind of creeped back in. And it would have been totally normal for these people to be like, oh, Jesus is God. But so is Zeus. And so is Aphrodite, and so is any other number one. So we'll worship them too, just to cover our bases. And this is, so they were saying essentially that salvation was Jesus and or other gods, okay? Where legalism was Jesus plus works, syncretism was Jesus and or others. And what does this look like today? It looks like universalism. Many paths, one destination or whatever other God you call true or whatever other God you are afraid of. And this was the problem of syncretism in their church. And the last thing that they were facing 
the last challenge that Paul addressed uh, is mysticism, which is essentially the idea that, that we live in, in a spiritual world and there are spiritual forces at work in our world that are at the same level, if not equivalent to Jesus, sought out beyond the gospel. The gospel wasn't enough, so they sought out be more truth that would lead them to an enlightenment or salvation if you just searched hard enough. And so for them, it was like true salvation, not just salvation, but like the true salvation that is available was, was uh, Jesus plus more. So legalism, Jesus plus works. Syncretism, Jesus and or others. And mysticism was Jesus plus more. Now, what does this look like in our church today? I think we see it a lot in self-help strategies sometimes. We see it in astrology. We see it with psychics. Just down the street on Foothill, you'll see that, that uh, get your fortune read, right? You see it through spiritual yoga. I'm not talking going to the Y and stretching, okay? like the real roots of yoga, you see this even in some extreme charismatic churches that believe that like, okay, the Bible is real, but, but God has something extra for those that seek him hard enough. That not everything is available through Jesus. And so I just gotta find my own truth. Or the Spirit has a special truth for me. It's picking what is true and adding it to what Jesus said. This is mysticism. And I know this might be a bit of a recap for those that were here last week and you're like, flipping through your pages and notes from Pastor Jeff, and you're like, Pastor, what's going on here? But I just really need you to know the context and the culture for which Paul was writing. Because everything that Paul writes in this letter, everything is a response to the focused, it's, it's response to and focused at addressing these challenges in Colossae. The challenges of mysticism, syncretism, and legalism that were creeping into their church. So everything he was writing was addressing these challenges, especially the passage that we're covering today. And so again, if you have your Bibles, make sure you open up uh, Colossians 1, 15, a passage famously known as the Christ hymn. The Christ hymn. And it might sound familiar if you just took communion and you participated in our confession, because this is where we sourced it. Now, the Christ hymn, um, which many of us already know, uh, is a song, a literal song that Paul placed into the book of Colossians that was meant to remind them of what they know, what they know and what they confess to be true, the reality that they now occupied as followers of Jesus. And this hymn, along with it come a number of questions that we don't actually know the answers to. One is, was this intended to be sung as a church? We don't know. It's in there as a hymn, but, but was this meant to, for the first century church in Colossae to sing along? What's the melody? Maybe we should write that. Jeff, you want to write the melody for us? We'll make it work? Okay, sounds good. Um, the second question is, uh, did Paul actually compose the song? Or did he, did he hear this somewhere else and, and throw it in as a reference? Did he quote it? And the third question was, did he take parts of an existing song and frame it to his specific audience? These are things we don't know. But all we do know is that the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, inspired Paul to educate this church in their season of challenges through this hymn about Jesus. And I'm gonna read it all the way through and then we are gonna sing it as a church. Everyone picks their own melody, okay? Does that work? Now I'm gonna read it through and then we're gonna go back and just see how it speaks to these challenges that they were facing. And so this Christ hymn goes a little something like this. Christ is the visible image 
of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else, and he holds all creation together. Christ is also the head of the church, which is his body. He is the beginning, supreme over all who rise from the dead. So he is first in everything. For God, in all his fullness, was pleased to live in Christ. And through him, God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. And this is the hymn. This is the end of the song. And Paul, he responds to this song saying, yes, he made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by, by means of Christ's blood on the cross. And verse 23, this includes you. This includes you who were once far away from God. You were his enemies, separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. Yet now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. As a result, he has brought you into his own presence, and you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. Last part right here. But you must continue to believe this truth. You must continue to believe this truth and stand firmly in it. Don't drift away from the assurance you received when you heard the good news. The good news has been preached all over the world, and I, Paul, have been appointed as God's servant to proclaim it. This is the word of the Lord, and this is our text for today. So what did we just, what did we just learn? I know it's a lot of Bible. You've heard a lot already. It's good for you, okay? So what have we heard? What do we know? Well, this is what I know. The passage is broken into three sections, all of which address the challenges that Epaphras and Philemon were concerned about in Colossae. Paul starts by bringing clarity to three things, right? Who Jesus is, and this will be on the screen, perfect. Who Jesus is, verses 15 through 19. Then he talks about what Jesus did in verses 20 and 22. Through 22, and then what we must do in reply, verse 23. So, what who Jesus is, what Jesus did, and what we must do. Now, let's start by taking a closer look at who Jesus is. Remembering back to all those folks in Colossae messing around with syncretism and mysticism, believing that there are multiple gods to worship and other spirits on par with Jesus, Paul begins the hymn addressing these folks by driving home the reality of Jesus, that verse 15, that he is, Christ is, the visible image of the invisible God. Now, what does that mean? What does that mean? Paul is saying that Jesus, Jesus Christ, the man who walked on earth more than 2,000 years ago is the visible, tangible essence of the one true God. We heard this in our opening scripture, too, from Hebrews 1, that, that, the, that the Son, Jesus, radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of God. Paul is saying in this, if you want to know what God is like, look to Jesus. There is no other God, there is no other source for truth or for knowledge or salvation. It's only him. 
It's only Jesus. Why? Verse 19. For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ. This is what I know. This is what I know. Everything that is God is now seen and found in Jesus. This is who Jesus is. He is God. And he, back to verse 15, he existed before anything was created and is supreme over all of creation. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. This is amazing. He made the things we can see and the things that we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Everything, everything was created through him and for him. And he exists before anything else and holds all creation together. Now pause there for a second because the ramifications of these, of these several verses, these verses are just absolutely mind-blowing. See, just like the folks in Colossae often searching for meaning and salvation and all sorts of supplemental things, this passage tells us today that Jesus is ultimate, that Jesus is supreme, he is absolute, and he has no equal. You have no rival, right? You have no equal. Now and forever, God, you reign. Verse 15, he is the beginning and existed before anything was created, and through him, God the Father made everything. Think back to Genesis chapter 1, first page of your Bibles after the, after the table of contents. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Paul, in this passage, is saying, yeah, that was Jesus. He made everything. Verse 16, he made everything, the things we can see. He made water and dirt and birds and flowers and kangaroos and koalas. Now, when I was growing up, it was a koala bear. Did anyone think of koala bears? My daughter, River, she's just like, it's not a bear, Dad. It's just, it's, what is it, River? It's not a, it's not a bear, though. It's like a marsupial, right? Is that right? Did anyone say, grow up saying koala bears? No one? Am I the only? Wisconsin education, let's just say it. So God made koalas and galaxies. God made grasshoppers and pollen. I know why, but he made Pluto and people and primates. God made everything we can see. And the systems and science, right, Don? The systems and science that hold all of it together. Jesus made everything on behalf of the Father. This is what I know. This is what I know. Jesus made everything we can see and this is what's wild. He made the things we can't see. Verse 16, thrones, kingdoms, rulers, authorities in the unseen world. What does that mean? Well, it means that we live in a supernatural world. We don't always like to think about it. Post-enlightenment culture. We have science to explain things now, but, but we live in a deeply supernatural world with things we cannot explain. There are things we, we can't see, and that's the point. There are forces and kingdoms and rulers and authorities that exist beyond the veil of our eyes and our comprehension. There are angels and demons, darkness and light, all moving and working behind the scenes, just beyond our eyes' ability to see. Still, Paul is saying in this passage, he's saying it's there, and the mystics believed it. The mystics were searching there for meaning, supplemental knowledge to, to, to achieve enlightenment, right? They believed there was a spiritual realm and they were trying to tap into it and search deeper knowledge and understanding. Just like the spiritualism today found in, in, like in the, kind of the foundations of, of yoga and tarot cards and psychics and diviners and Ouija boards and all of these things, there is a world beyond our eyes to see. 
And Paul is saying to Colossae and to us that Jesus created it. He created the koalas, and he created the kingdoms that exist beyond our eyes. He created it all. And not only did he create it, but I love this in, in this Christ hymn. It says that, that, that Jesus allows it to exist. Jesus allows it to exist because he and he alone holds creation together. Jesus holds it all together, and this is what I know. This is what I know. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, our opening scripture, one more time. It says that the Son radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of God, and he sustains everything by the mighty power of his command. Jesus creates it, and Jesus sustains it. This is how I know, and this is what I know. But how can he do it? How does this work? Well, it's because Jesus is supreme. Jesus exists without equal. There, he alone is God, the creator of everything else. Uh, that He is the creator, and everything else is just creation. Jesus is creator, and everything else is just creation. Because he alone is God, and that includes us. This is who Jesus is, and what Paul wants the world to know and acknowledge, that Jesus is supreme and he has authority. Jesus is supreme and he has authority, which brings us to verse 18, that Jesus is not only this vast powerhouse, all-power God creating everything, but he also is head of the church, which is his body. Now, what does that mean? It means that Jesus is in charge of his church. Jesus is in charge of the church. It's his church. He's the boss. He's the boss, and he's the only boss. Think about the problem with syncretism for a minute, right? When the church was also worshiping other gods, right? Yeah, Paul's like, y'all, Jesus is your Lord. There is no room in the church for other gods. Zeus is a joke. He ain't even real. All the other gods are created by people to help them explain and make sense of their situations. But, but in our world, in the kingdom of God, Jesus created you. You didn't create him. Jesus created you because he is the one true eternal God. So don't go around messing with other wannabe gods because they aren't real. They are a waste of your time and they are a waste of your worship. So keep your eyes on Jesus. He's in charge. Why? One more time, verse 19. For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ. And this is the first thing that Paul wanted to drive home to this church, who Jesus is. And who is Jesus? He is God. He is supreme. And he is sufficient. And this is what I know. Who knows this to be true? Amen. Now next in the hymn, here we go. He talks about what Jesus did. Beyond just making the world, if that wasn't enough. Beyond just holding everything together, if that wasn't enough. Um, under his authority and power, no big deal. He brings it home in verse 20 by saying, for God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ, and through him, this is it, verse 20, through him God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. This is what Jesus did if I could say it another way, it's simply that Jesus made peace possible for you. 
Jesus made peace possible for everything in heaven and on earth. He stopped the inevitable entropy that sin caused in the world and reversed it toward the eventual reconciliation and restoration of all creation. How did he do it? He did it by willingly dying on the cross for the sin of the world, defeating the power of death and ushering in an eternal life for all who believe. In verse 21, it says, this includes you. Isn't that good news? It's so good. This includes you who were once far away from God. You were his enemies. You were enemies of God, separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. Yet now, Jesus has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. And this is what I know. This is what I know as a result by by his work and your faith. He has brought you into his own presence and you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. This is what Jesus did. He did it. The king of the universe did the work. Now think back to those folks uh, dealing with legalism for a minute in the church, right? Trying to create all sorts of systems and supplements for behavior to ensure their salvation. Don't smoke, don't drink, don't dance, don't chew, don't run with folks that do. Here we go. Paul's like, y'all, the work Jesus did for you is enough. It's enough. You don't need to work to earn salvation. Honestly, you couldn't even if you tried. His grace and love and sacrifice are sufficient for you. Isn't this some good news? Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough because Jesus is ultimate and he has done everything because he decided to. This was his decision. He did everything necessary to welcome you into his presence without conditions, without brokenness, and without burdens. And I don't know who needs to hear that today. I don't know who needs to hear that today because I know know that we're all approaching this morning from different Landscapes from different perspectives. We're all approaching today with different, with different backstories and different weeks that brought us up to this moment. We've all taken our seat at church. We've all stood and sang some songs. We've all been at different places. And so I don't, I don't want to assume that, that we're all on the same page, but I, I just need you to know that if you, if you have confessed with your mouth and you have believed in your heart that Jesus is Lord, then you now occupy his presence blameless, innocent, and without burden. God has welcomed you into his presence. There's nothing you need to do. Jesus already did the work. By his grace, through your faith, you are now called holy. That's not something every church talks about, right? The scripture says that by his grace, through your faith, you are now called holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. Your past is gone. You are a new creation from the inside out. And this is what Jesus did because who Jesus is. And we see this in the Christ hymn of of Colossians chapter one. Jesus made peace possible for you. Jesus made peace possible. Now the last thing that Paul wants them to understand in this passage is really what's just expected of them. Because of who Jesus is and what Jesus did, this is what they must do in 
And this is found in verse 23. It says, as a result, is that up there? Yes. As a result, he, Jesus, has brought you into his own presence. And you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. Verse 23, but you must continue to believe this truth and stand firmly in it. You must continue to believe this truth of who Jesus is and what Jesus did and stand firmly in it. Don't drift away. I love that imagery. Don't drift away from the assurance you received when you heard the good news. The good news has been preached all over the world and I, Paul, have been appointed as God's servant to proclaim it. And I, and I just love this simple expectation from God to the church. It's just don't drift. Don't drift. Believe and stand firm. It's not be perfect. It's not show up 52 weeks a year and, and give your everything. It's, 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 it's just simply don't drift. Believe and stand firm. Don't drift away from the assurance you received when you heard the good news. You don't need anything else. Jesus is enough, and you don't need anyone else. Jesus is supreme. This is what I know. And this is what many of you know. Now believe it and stand firm in this truth. Don't get distracted. Trying to find purpose and meaning, salvation or direction from any other source. Jesus is all you need. Jesus is it. There is no one higher or greater or more powerful. He reigns above it all. He reigns above it all. Over the universe and over every heart. There is no higher name, right? He reigns above everything, and this has given you everything. And he has given you everything to welcome you into his house. So the, the expectation is don't drift. Stay faithful. That's all, that's all that's required in this moment. Jesus did the work. Now it's up to you to stand firm in the good news you've received. To keep his truth at the forefront of your heart and mind. Don't drift. Don't drift. Awesome, right? What a good God we have. Jesus rules. Did everything. We just need to be faithful. Sounds good. We just need to walk that narrow road with him. Amen. Hallelujah. But listen, if you're anything like me, standing firm is easier said than done. Anybody? Y'all, it can be easy to drift. It can be so easy to lose sight of the reality, our true reality in the midst of the craziness of our everyday life. Y'all, it can be so easy, right? to look for supplements to truth. It can be so easy to revert back to our own legalistic practices, like maybe the sacrifice Jesus made for me wasn't quite enough to cover all my garbage. It can be so easy to subconsciously worship other gods in our daily life. And I'm not talking about Zeus or Aphrodite. I'm talking about the gods of success, the gods of, of security and lust and pleasure and greed. It's so easy to drift from the narrow road of Jesus. And so what can we do to stand firm? Because that's really what today is all about. As we walk this narrow road with Jesus, how do we stand firm? How do we stay faithful and, and not drift away? Well, I want to make this real quick for the sake of time. And please don't receive this as a legalistic list of behaviors to get God to love you. Because if you've given your life to Jesus, God already loves you. Nothing you can do to earn more of God's love. It's there. So this is a, just, just two simple steps to help you remember his love 
and to live in reply. Verse 23. Two things. If you want to stand firm, first you must receive truth and recite truth. Two things. Write that down. Receive truth and recite truth every single day. Receive truth. Recite truth. Friends, you only have so much room in your heart and mind. And what you bring into your life, the proverb says, ultimately determines the direction of your days. What you bring in comes out. What you bring in directs your steps. And while you might know something somewhere in the back of your mind, you might still know the truth of Colossians chapter 1. It's somewhere back here. When you pile 30 hours of Netflix and the news and work and podcasts and music that don't point to the good news of Jesus, when you pile all that stuff in, it can be really hard from the back of your mind to recall the good news that saved you. It can be so hard for the source for what's real when it's all the way back here buried under the rest of your life. If you bring the truth of God into your mind for two hours a week, which is better than nothing, but if you only bring it in for two hours a week and you're bombarded with secondary things for the other 96 hours a week you're awake, the ratio isn't great. And it can be really easy to forget, to drift off course. This is why we must receive daily. I'm happy to feed you on Sunday, but if you're only eating once a week, you're gonna be hungry. So what does it look like to daily receive the truth of God? Here's my challenge for you and for me. Because just because I know how to talk about this stuff doesn't mean that I'm like awesome at it. So how about we do this together for the next 30 days? Would you join me? And you can think about this for a moment. Join me in starting your day with the truth of God. Maybe some of you are already doing it, but I know a lot of you aren't. So before you pick up your phone to check social media or the news or email or reply to texts or whatever, like bring the truth of God into your life. Start your day with Jesus. Maybe it's listening to worship music. Maybe that's your starting point. Maybe it's reading your Bible. Maybe it's listening to a sermon on YouTube. Maybe it's praying for your family with your family. Maybe it's teaching your kids what it means to follow Jesus. Whatever it might be, we need to start our days every day receiving the truth of God. So what do you say? I know that this might feel a little daunting. So maybe beyond 30 days, let's just say for the next week, seven days, get out your phone, set an alarm. First thing when you wake up, spend time with Jesus. Receive the truth of God. And, and let's just see what happens. Let's just see what happens. Begin to observe how your behaviors and the patterns of your life and your thoughts begin to change when you start your day with what you already believe to be true. So what do you say, anybody? Kinda, maybe, you're thinking about it. I see a couple hands, I see a couple, I'm looking at everyone without hands up and there's judgment radiating out of my being. I'm kidding, I'm kidding. But I promise you, I promise you, if you begin to bring Jesus into your life in the morning, it'll affect the rest of your day. It affects what you search for and what you seek and what you see. So welcome the truth of God. Bring the, tr the truth of God into your life every single morning. Uh, and okay, the second thing beyond receiving is reciting. And you're like, what, is that? what does that mean? Um, start to talk about the truth of God in your everyday life. Just talk about it. 
I mean, when is the last time outside of a Bible study or, you know, uh, yeah, outside of a Bible study that the good news of Jesus is a regular part of your conversation? And I'm not talking about, like, sharing your faith and witnessing or, you know, I'm not trying to, like, win debates about theology right now. I'm just, I'm, this isn't high-pressure sales that I'm talking about with reciting. Just, like, regular, everyday conversations about Jesus and the goodness of God and the things you're learning about Jesus, the things you've experienced about God, like the stories you've been reading or, or processing. How often is Jesus and his truth coming out of your mouth? If you want to remain faithful and steady, then you need to begin to normalize talking about Jesus. Normalize it. Just like after seeing a good movie or the day after the big game, we should be talking about the truth we receive from God at church. The truth about God in worship and the scriptures, what we're learning and what we're receiving in the mornings. So here's the other part of the challenge for the next 30 days, maybe seven days, who knows. Um, as we receive truth daily, we need to start daily, uh, work in a daily practice of reciting truth back out in the world. It can be with your kids, it can be with your coworkers, your friends, whatever. It can be with your parents, your neighbors, and again, I'm not asking you to lead them to Jesus. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm just inviting you into this challenge about talking about your faith more and allowing what you receive to be recited and passed on so you might stand firm in what you believe to be true. Normalize, that's the phrase I'm working in, normalize the truth of God in your life and see what happens. As talking about the things of God or with those around you and just see what happens because as you do, I promise you will emerge from the next week, the next month, more steady, more encouraged and more optimistic as you approach the coming season. Why? What comes in comes out. I think some of us might be like, man, I don't, I don't really know how to normalize the conversation about God. Just, just receive the truth of God and it'll make its way back out of you. I promise. Receive what comes in comes out. And what's so cool about this whole process and this narrow road that we're walking on, I was thinking about this on the plane. I was just like, man, What's so cool is that I, I know this is what you want. I know this is the life you want. I was talking with all these church planters and these pastors over the past week, and I was just bragging you up. Y'all, I was like, you don't know what's happening in La Crescenta right now. God is building his church, a multi-generational, multi-ethnic, beautiful family of God in the, in the highlands of Los Angeles, and God is doing the work. We are just along for the ride. And there are people praying for you even now as you sit in these chairs and these pews. And so I know you want to be faithful. That's why you're here on a Sunday. Instead of going out to brunch, I know you want more of God. I know you want to grow in your obedience to Jesus. I know that some of you, even in the room, are just trying to cross that line of faith for the first time. And you're like, you're like man, I theoretically know, but I feel like there's more out there. I get it. I do, but you're still here. You're in this place hearing and receiving what's true. And so, so I know that you want to grow in obedience to Jesus. This is what I know about you. But what do you know? Who do you know? So what do you say? Let's do it. Let's not drift. Let's not drift. Let's stay steady and focused from the assurance we received when we heard the good news. Amen? The good news that Jesus is supreme and sufficient. This is what I know. This is what I know. 
in Philippians 2, though he was God. I just want you to think about this. For, and just close your eyes for a second as I read this, this closing passage. And I just I'd want you to imagine this and all the impression, all the images of God you might have ever had growing up or even approaching this morning. I just want you to take, close your eyes and imagine a God that's like this, Philippians 2. Though he was God, he did not think equality with God was something to cling to. This is God, the creator of the universe. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges and took the humble position of a slave who was born as a human being. This is what I know. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. This is what I know. Therefore, God elevated him to the highest honor and gave him the name above all names, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is what I know. And this is what I want everyone to know. So I want to pray for you, and Becca is going to come up in just a moment with Tracy and lead us in a closing song, a song of response where we can receive and recite good news. But as we do, I just want to, I just want to put this, this before you, this moment, this reality of the Christ hymn. So if you just keep your eyes closed, your head bowed, and, and I want to pray for you. And I know that there's some of us in the room right now that have just been on the fence. They're just like, man, I, I, uh, I, I believe in church. I believe that Jesus was real, but I'm still trying to figure some of this stuff out. Today is the day, y'all. I just, I, I appeal to you, I beg you to cross this line of faith into obedience this morning. The God who created everything you see and everything you can loves you to death, literally loves you to death, so you might be welcomed in his house for all eternity. So I just want to pray and extend that invitation to you. You don't have to know it all. You don't have to have it all figured out. You just have to know this first step, and the first step is one called faith. So I want to pray for you and, uh, and all the believers in the house. Just, 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 let's just be praying for anyone who might be on the fence about this stuff. So let's pray right now. Jesus, we believe you're real. We believe you're good and you love us and you lead to peace. God, I know that there are people in the house today that are on the fence, that have been on the fence for years as they've been trying to process life, the spiritualism, the extras, the legalism, the syncretism, God. They're trying to process what life is all about. And now this pastor is up here in his black jeans and he's telling me that Jesus is real and Jesus is supreme. And so God, I just know that there are people in the house today that are doubting. And there are people in the house today that are, that are just right on the fence. So God, I ask that you just meet them and just push them right over into belief today. Push them over into obedience. And if that is you, if that is you, friends, in the house, in this beautiful, multi-generational, multicultural church, I just, all it, all it is, all the relationship with Jesus is, is it starts with saying, Jesus, and you can say this in your heart and mind. You say, Jesus, I believe you're real. I believe you're good. I know you love me and you lead to peace. Jesus, take my life. Take my life, it's yours. Jesus, I believe that you're real, and this is for everyone in the house. Jesus, I believe you're real, you're good, you love me, and you lead to peace. Jesus, take my life. I don't want to drift. Take my life, it's yours. Because I believe, Jesus, that you reign above all things. 
So Jesus, I ask that you just meet us in this moment and lay heavy on our hearts. God, whatever barriers we might have, God, I just ask that you'd strip those things away as we, as we receive and as we recite in this next moment of singing. God, that you would just meet us in this time and that you would assure us once again of the good news that we have received. So Jesus, we love you and we are so grateful that you're a good God. We're so grateful that you are all powerful and supreme and there is no equal. God, we just wanna, we just wanna follow you together. Jesus, be with us as we sing, be with us as we go, and it's in your name that we pray.